Well, if you're a mom or you've been around kids for any length of time, you have probably at one point or another told them to do something and heard the response that this is hard. Yeah, we've all heard it. We've all heard it. And we think, they think when they say that, oh, well, that's, that means I don't have to do it. And I'm a mom. I've been a mom now for almost 10 years. And so I've heard that a few times over my tenure. And so now I've developed a standard response. Anytime one of my kids says, but it's hard, I say, well, most things in life worth doing are. And then I say to them, plus, what does Team Winter do? And they're supposed to respond back, Team Winter does hard things. Because see, I want my kids to know that their life is not going to be easy, that they are going to encounter difficult obstacles and challenges, that things are going to be hard. But that is not an excuse for anyone in our family not to do those hard things. In fact, we are going to commit to do those things that are challenging. We are going to commit to persevere through the difficulties in order to accomplish the tasks that have been assigned to us. Well, what's true for Team Winter is also true for all of us who are on God's team. God has given us tasks and responsibilities, and sometimes those things are hard. Sometimes the assignments that God has given us are difficult and challenging. And yet God doesn't expect us to say that because something is difficult that we have an excuse not to do it. God expects us to persevere through those hard things. And in our passage today, Paul is going to talk about some of the hard things that he had to deal with as a result of the assignments that God has given him. So if you haven't already, please turn with me to Colossians 1. Our passage this morning is Colossians 1, 24 through 29. And Paul writes this, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction for the sake of his body, that is the church, of which I, Paul, became a minister according to the stewardship, according to the assignment from God that was given to me for you, saints of Colossae, to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints, to them, to his precious saints, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of his glory, of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him, Christ, we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, for this I strive, for this I work, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Paul starts our passage with two perhaps unexpected statements. First, he says he rejoices in his sufferings. He says, these hard things that I encounter, they are something that give me joy. And then he ties those sufferings directly to his ministry. And just like Paul, we need to, point one, joyfully anticipate hardships in God-given assignments. 
We need to joyfully anticipate hardships in the tasks, the responsibilities, the stewardships that God gives us. Now, it might strike us odd that he, Paul says, I rejoice in my sufferings, but it probably did not take the church of Colossae by surprise. Because if you remember just a few verses earlier in this letter that he's written them, he has told them that they need to rejoice even as they go through hard things. In Colossians 1, verses 11 through 12, he writes to them and he says, as you go through these difficulties, may you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might. Why does he want them to be strengthened? Because he wants them for all endurance and patience with joy. With joy, rejoicing through these difficulties and giving thanks to the Father, the one who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. So it probably didn't take them by surprise that he was saying, just like I told you to rejoice in your sufferings, I rejoice in the difficulties and the challenges that I have to endure as a result of the stewardship, the assignments that God has given me. But it may have taken them by surprise that he tied his suffering directly to his ministry. I mean, think about it. He's writing to people that he's ministering to, and he's saying, I am suffering for your sake. When I serve you, when I teach you, when I admonish you, there is suffering that I endure on behalf of the church, on behalf of the saints in Christ. And we tend to think, and I'm sure the church in Colossae probably think, of Paul's ministry as a privilege. I mean, think about it. He had been dramatically redeemed on the road to Damascus. Christ himself said, you are going to be my apostle. You are going to be my ambassador to the Gentiles. He had this radical conversion, and we think, wow, what an awesome responsibility and privilege he had. How great it must have been to be thought of so highly by God that he would give Paul this assignment. And I'm sure Paul felt that way. But we have to remember that with that great responsibility came great suffering. Paul was writing this letter to the church from prison. He had been in prison for the sake of the gospel. Plus, he is writing to people who are being led astray by false teaching. Here he cares for the church of Colossae. They've been given the true gospel, and they're being captivated by false teachers rather than holding fast to the gospel that was imparted to them. Before Christ, Paul's life was probably pretty charmed. I mean, think about it. He was the Pharisee among Pharisee. He was trained by the most excellent, the most renowned teacher in the Jewish religion. He was, it was said of him that there was no one like him. He was the best amongst his peers. And he lived what we would probably think of as a pretty charmed, a pretty comfortable life. And then God radically saves him. And his life is marked by suffering. His life is marked by challenges. He is beaten. He is shipwrecked. He is imprisoned. He is opposed. People are trying to kill him for the, because he is proclaiming the truth of the gospel. And yet, despite this fact that his life before looked great and his life now looked hard, he rejoices in the hardships. He rejoices in the suffering that he endures for the sake of Christ. 
And we have to ask ourselves, why would Paul rejoice? Why would he go through hard things and not just endure, not just say, okay, I will get through these, but to joyfully approach those hardships that he had to encounter because of his ministry? Well, he gives us a couple of indications in our passage. One is what we just talked about. One of the reasons that he rejoices in his sufferings is because he sees that suffering as directly linked to the stewardship, to the ministry that God has given him. He says, as my ministry grows, as I have a greater impact for the kingdom, I am suffering more. And that is something we're celebrating because I know that my suffering is tied to the work that God is doing. I was reminded recently of how this plays out sometimes in our day-to-day life. As Stacy mentioned, I teach at California Baptist University, and in any given semester, I have usually around 150, 200 students across my four classes. Well, this semester, in God's providence and his wisdom, I have 300 students. It's a lot. I'm not going to lie. Now, I did think, when I saw my class, my enrollment increasing, I thought, okay, I've got this, right? I'm, I'm a fairly intelligent person. I know how to organize things. I knew I was going to have a lot of students before the semester started. So I was like, I got this. I can organize my classes a little bit differently. I have a wonderful teaching assistant who helps me with grading. I can use Blackboard to grade things automatically. It, it's going to be fine. But what I didn't think of the fact was that even though I can manage all the details of the classroom, by using technology and using the assistance provided to me, when you have 300 students in your class, that's 300 people who may be hurting. That's 300 people who may be going through difficulties and challenges. That's 300 people who may be lost and in need of a savior. And I was excited. I thought, wow, that's great. 300 souls I could reach for the sake of God's kingdom. And let me tell you, it is great. It is awesome. But that's also 300 souls who I'm bearing the burden for because I care about them. And when they go through challenges and when they go through difficulties, or when I have a week like last week where multiple of them are going through challenges and difficulties, I feel the weight of that responsibility. It causes me heartache and tears because I care for them. And ladies, I just want to give you a little bit of sisterly exhortation. There are people in our church who are bearing the weight of responsibility, not just for 300 souls, but for 500, for 1,000, for 3,000 souls. The pastors in our church have to bear the weight of giving an account for how you and I grow in Christ as a result of their teaching and instruction. Can we just take a moment and realize that although we may not see that as suffering for the sake of the gospel, that they are dealing with heartache, they are dealing with disappointment, they are dealing with frustration. We may look at their lives and we like compare it to Paul and we say, well, they're not in prison. They're not beaten for the sake of the gospel. They live in South Orange County, which is a pretty great place to live. Right? I get their Christmas cards, and everyone in their family is smiling. (laughs) 
When I see them on the patio, they always greet me with a hug and a, and a joyful word. But ladies, if we think that's the whole story, we're being naive. Their suffering may not be visible, but they are agonizing. They are bearing the heartache and disappointment that comes from people turning from the faith. They are bearing the weight of responsibility of saying, did I teach my flock well today? Did I instruct them adequately, effectively, and accuracy in the word of God? They are weeping with those who weep. And that is suffering. That is a hardship that they're enduring for your and my sake. So my sisterly exhortation to you is this. First of all, just because you always see our pastors and ministry leaders smile, let's recognize that doesn't tell the whole story. That they are enduring a great weight and responsibility because they care for you and for me. The second part of that exhortation is to say this. You may not know it, but October is Pastor's Appreciation Month. I think it would be a wonderful thing if we overwhelmed them with our appreciation, not because it takes away the burden, but because it recognizes that they are enduring hardship because they care for our souls. And if each of our small groups could commit to say, we are going, I think we should appreciate our pastors every month of the year, all right? I don't think that should just be an October thing. But it is Pastor's Appreciation Month. And I think it would be a wonderful thing if each of our small groups could say, we are going to flood our pastors with appreciation. We are going to strive to make sure that they know that even though they suffer on our behalf, that suffering does not go unnoticed. They may never show it, but we appreciate what they are doing as they bear the weight of responsibility of giving an account before our holy God for their teaching and their instruction and their care for you and I. So we see that Paul tied his suffering to his ministry. He said, because I am a steward of the gospel, I suffer for Christ's sake. And it was an honor to be counted worthy in order to suffer for Christ. That's one of the reasons that Paul rejoices. But he gives us another indication of why he rejoices. In verse 24, he says, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction for the sake of his body, that is the church. Now that, let's just admit it, that's a confusing statement. What does Paul possibly mean that he's filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction. Well, I think it helps us to first acknowledge what we know Paul doesn't mean. We know for sure what Paul does not mean is that somehow his suffering for the sake of the gospel is accomplishing something that Christ's work on the cross did not accomplish. He is not saying that Christ's redemptive work, his death and resurrection are somehow incomplete. We know that for sure because in Colossians itself, he talks about how God's, Christ's work on the cross is totally sufficient for our redemption. 
He says this in Colossians 1, 18 through 20, just a few verses earlier. He says this in Colossians 1, verse 22. And he says this in Colossians 2, 14 through 15, where he says that Christ, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He has disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So in the book itself, Paul makes clear. In the letter itself, Paul makes clear Christ's work is sufficient. And when we look at the whole canon of Paul's writing, we know he thought this as well. Because in Romans 3, 21 through 26, he says, we are justified by his grace. It is done. It is completed. We are already justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption in Christ Jesus. Now, Paul's writing tells us for sure that he's not saying Christ's work on the cross was somehow insufficient. But even, even his word choice gives us an indication of that. That word that he uses here for afflictions, it is never in the entire New Testament used to talk about Christ suffering on our behalf. It's a completely different word. I know we see that and we think, oh, he's the, he was afflicted for our transgressions. We might immediately go to that verse. It's a different word. So even his word choice says, I'm not talking about Christ's redemptive work. So we know that for sure. We also know that Christ's followers were told that they would suffer. Matthew 24, 9, Jesus says to his followers that you will be delivered up to tribulation and put to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. John 15, 19 through 20 says, but I chose you out of this world. Jesus is again saying, I chose you, my apostles, my disciples. And because of this, by simply the fact that I chose you, the world hates you. Paul himself was specifically told that he would suffer for the sake of Christ. When he had that radical encounter with Christ on the road to Damascus, and then God sent Ananias to him, he told Ananias, Acts 9.16, he says this, I will show him, meaning Paul, how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So we know that Paul is not saying when he says he's filling up what is lacking, we know he's not saying that somehow Christ's work was incomplete. And we also know that Paul totally expected to suffer for the name of Christ. Thirdly, we know that when we endure suffering as a result of our commitment to Christ, it is one of the ways that we demonstrate our identification with him. 2 Corinthians 1, 3 through 7 says, we share abundantly in Christ's suffering. Now think about that. That doesn't make any sense from a purely pragmatic perspective. right? We're not getting beaten by Roman soldiers. No one is hanging us on a cross. No one is telling, driving us out of the or trying to drive us out of the temple and tell us not to teach the word of God. No one is doing that. So what does it mean we're sharing in Christ's suffering? It also says in 2 Corinthians 4, 7 through 12 that we are always carrying in the body the death of Jesus. Again, something that doesn't make sense from a purely pragmatic perspective. We're not dead. We're still alive. But it says so that the life of Jesus may always be manifested in our bodies. 
So what does it mean when it says we share abundantly in Christ's suffering? What does Paul mean when he says that we're carrying in the body the death of Jesus? What Paul means is Christ's enemies can no longer inflict the suffering and the hardship on him. They can't do anything anymore to our triumphant Savior. And we are taking the beatings in his place. Paul says in Galatians 6, 17, that he bears on his body the marks of Jesus. They could no longer hit Jesus. He was seated at the right hand of God. He had conquered death. There was no more evil or opposition that they could do to him. And, Christ, and Paul was taking those blows in his place. The suffering that they wanted to met out on our Savior, they were metting out on Paul instead. And ladies, the same thing is true when you and I suffer for Christ's sake. Paul was continuing the gospel-proclaiming work that Christ had initiated. Christ had initiated the proclamation of good news through his death and resurrection. And Paul was continuing to do that work. And so he was suffering for Christ's sake. God used Christ's suffering to bring us redemption. And the suffering that his kids endure as part of their God-given assignments will continue to be used by him to advance his kingdom. That's why Paul could say that I am suffering for the sake of his body that is the church. God was using Paul's suffering to accomplish something good, to further build his kingdom, to be a witness and example, not only to the church of Colossae, but to many churches that were being planted. I was reminded of this somewhat humorously recently when I had the opportunity. One of the really cool things about being a professor at Cal Baptist is that I get to hear from some really renowned and excellent theologians. They get to invite it to our campus, and I get to go and hear from them, and it's awesome. And a couple weeks ago, we had Sinclair Ferguson come to speak. And he just happens to be one of my favorite authors. I'm not like a fangirl type of girl, but I was fangirling over the fact that Sinclair Ferguson was on our campus and was speaking to us. And he said, as he was talking, he said something that I thought, wow, that's really profound to think of. He said, have you ever thought of the fact have you ever thought of the fact that we would have very little of the New Testament if everything had gone right? Think about it. How much of the New Testament we would have had if no Christian had suffered for Christ's sake? We would have very little of the New Testament if there was no Christians that were being persecuted, that were being driven from their homes for the sake of the gospel. We would have no we would have very little of the New Testament if we didn't have any churches who were being led astray. If every church that Paul planted was faithful to the gospel message and he never had to endure the hardship of them going astray, we'd be missing huge chunks of the Bible. But God used the suffering that Paul endured to minister to those churches. And he continues to use Paul's suffering to minister to us through the words that his Holy Spirit inspired him to write. Ladies, I don't know how God's going to use your suffering in the assignments that he's given you, but I know that he will. And he will use them not only in your life, but he will use them for his kingdom's purposes. 
Because as you endure suffering for the sake of our Savior, God is using that to build his kingdom. Paul continues in our passage, and he reminds us that part of his assignment, what God had given him to do, was it says at the end of verse 25, his job was to make the word of God fully known. And then he continues in verses 26 through 27 by saying this, this word of God that he's been instructed to make fully known is the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, those saints, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now we might be thinking, what mystery is Paul talking about? Well, once again, he tells us it's the word of God. And when we see that, the word of God, we should immediately think of Christ because John 1 tells us that that Jesus is the word, is the logos. He is the word of God. So we know Paul is talking about the mystery that is to be revealed is Christ. Well, how was Christ a mystery? The nation of Israel had been waiting for generations for their Messiah. They had been waiting to see how God would redeem them. And that mystery was revealed when his precious son took on human form and walked this earth in order to pay the penalty for their sins and to conquer death. And not only was he the savior of the nation of Israel, but he is the savior of the Gentiles too. God's plan for the before the foundations of the world, was that he would send his son to die on the cross, to take on the penalty, not only of Israel's sin, but also the penalty of the sins of each and every one of the believers in Colossae. They had no reason to expect that the Savior, the Messiah of Israel, would be their Savior too. And yet God's wonderful mystery, God's wonderful plan from the beginning was that he would redeem them through the death and resurrection of their son, of his son. And the Colossians, rather than abandoning their hope that was to be found only in Christ by being distracted by false teaching, needed to recognize how wonderful it was that Christ saved them and that he always was planning to save them. They needed to, as I put it in point number two, maintain hope in Christ and his plan. Their savior was the Jewish Messiah. I don't know if we can accurately wrap our heads around how remarkable and how astounding that was. And ladies, I don't know if we always wrap our heads around the fact Our Savior was the Jewish Messiah. The nation of Israel expected that they would be saved. God had promised that they would be saved. But their expectation was that it would be some type of political freedom, that they would have a conquering king that would come and destroy the other nations. But the mystery that God revealed in Christ was that the conquering king wasn't coming the first time around. The conquering king is coming. But when he came to the earth, 
as a baby, the incarnate word of God in a little town called Bethlehem that was disregarded and insignificant. He was going to come not as their political redeemer, but as the savior of their sins. He was not going to provide abundant life in this life. He was going to provide abundant life for eternity. And they did not understand that. That was the mystery that was being revealed over time and was fully revealed when Jesus came on this earth. When he walked this earth, where he participated in three years of ministry, and then he died on a criminal's cross, taking on a penalty that he did not deserve, so that everyone who believed in their hearts and confessed with their mouth that Jesus was Lord would be saved from their sins. Ladies, this is a remarkable thing. God himself came to this world because he loved you and he loved me. Why would we put our hope in anything else? Why would we trust any other wisdom? Why would we, like the church in Colossae, be distracted from any other gospel? He had a plan for our redemption from the beginning, and we need to maintain our hope in him and his plan. And we need to continue maintaining that hope until one day we see him face to face in glory, until one day we experience the total revelation of what it means to serve a holy and awesome and loving God. We know that Paul's focus is on Christ because he indicates that in the following verses as well. We know he's talking about Christ as being this mystery because it says in verse 28, him, meaning Christ, we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Because of Paul's focus on Christ, because of his great love for his Savior and his Redeemer, Paul is faithfully enduring suffering, enduring inflictions, and continuing to labor for the sake of God's kids. And similarly, you and I need to point three, work for growth in God's family. We need to work for growth in God's family. Now, I know when we think of Paul, we tend to think about the fact that he was this great evangelist, and he was. Paul was an itinerant preacher. He was going from city to city in order to proclaim the good news of Christ. But in this case, Paul is not talking to unbelievers. He's not saying, I'm laboring that people may know Christ. He's saying, I'm laboring, I'm working for the sake of the church. These are individuals who are already redeemed. These are individuals whose names are written in the book of life. And he is toiling. He is struggling on their behalf. And did you notice how emphatic he is in his description of his work? He says he's warning everyone. Everyone. Who's he teaching? He's teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone mature in Christ. And he's doing that by struggling with all 
of Christ's enemies. Paul is holding nothing back because of his love for the saints. He is all in for the sake of God's people. And ladies, you and I should be too. We should be all in for the sake of God's family. And we might be tempted to think, ah, but Natalie, Paul is a pastor. I, not a pastor. I don't have to be constantly thinking about the saints, the church. That's the pastor's job. But Colossians 1.20 makes it clear it wasn't because he was a pastor that Paul was all in for the sake of the church. Colossians 1.20 says this, verses 20 through 22 says this, and through him, Christ, to reconcile to himself all things, whether in heaven, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, church, you were once alienated and hostile in mind. You were doing evil deeds that he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. Christ died. Why did he die? In order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Paul's concern for the church wasn't because he was a pastor. Paul's concern for the church was because his Savior's concern was for the church. Christ did what he did on our behalf so that he could present us holy and blameless and above reproach. And so Paul wants to make sure that he is doing all that he can to present every saint mature in Christ. And it's helpful for us to consider what did Paul do as a result of this commitment? Well, he tells us he did three things. He tells us in verses 28 that he proclaimed Christ, that he taught everyone with all wisdom, and that he warned everyone. And I think it's helpful for us to ask, are we doing all three of these things because of our love for our sisters in Christ? First, are we proclaiming Christ? Are we using every moment of every conversation that we have to try to turn the conversation to God and his faithfulness? Are we telling our sisters about how we have seen God's love and grace poured out on our life? Are we making sure that as we talk to the people at the grocery store and they ask, how is your day? That we're using the opportunity to direct the conversation to the gospel, to what Christ has done on our behalf. Are we proclaiming him? Are we extolling him? Are we using our opportunities to make sure our words are reflecting who he is? And then we have to ask, well, are we teaching everyone with all wisdom? Are we reserving our words of instruction for just a precious few people that are close to us? Or are we sharing what God has taught us through his scripture? Because we recognize, I hope, when Paul says, in teaching everyone with all wisdom, the source of all wisdom is the Bible, the word of God. So what we learn on the weekend, we should be trying to teach to others, whether that's our kids or someone in our small group or someone we meet on the patio. What we learn from our daily Bible reading, we should be teaching to others. Not because we want to puff ourselves up, but because we care about their walk with Christ. Because we want to make sure that we're doing everything that we can to present them mature in the Lord. Are we teaching everyone based on what we learn from the Bible? Are we using what God has imparted to us to instruct, to encourage, 
to exhort others. And then the third thing is the hardest thing. Are we warning everyone? Do we care enough about our sister in Christ that we're willing to lovingly, with the support of Scripture, warn them when we think they're going astray? Are we willing to say, hey, I know you really like that television show, but I got to say, I don't think watching it is furthering your walk with Christ. Are we willing to say, hey, that podcast that you really like, I know that person is a really engaging speaker, but the truth that they teach you is not the truth of God's word. And sister, I love you enough that I'm willing to have this difficult and uncomfortable conversation because my ultimate goal is not to save our relationship. My ultimate goal is to present you mature in Christ. I want you to know Christ more as a result of the time we spend together. I want you to serve Christ better as a result of the words I impart to you. So I'm willing to sacrifice our relationship because I love you and I want to warn you when you're going astray. Are we doing these things, ladies? Are we proclaiming Christ? Are we teaching everyone with all wisdom? And are we warning everyone? Not because we want to think better of ourselves, but because we want them to know and love their Savior more. Paul not only tells us what he does, he tells us how he does it. He says in verse 29 that he's toiling, he's struggling. This is not a passive endeavor. He's not saying, well, when God opens a door, then I will teach everyone what he's imparted to me. He's not saying, well, if there's an opportunity, I'll make sure I let someone know that I think they're being led astray. He's not even saying, well, I'm not going to warn that person, but I'll tell her small group leader, and I'll let her small group leader warn her. He's not doing any of those things. This is an active, dedicated commitment. That word struggling is the same Greek word that's at the root of our word agony. The word is agonizomai. You can hear it even in the word. This is a heartfelt, a dedication, a commitment. I imagine if he's agonizing over the state of the souls in Colossae, that if he's that concerned about the saints of the church, there's times that Paul is losing sleep because he cares about the souls of his brothers and sisters in Christ. I imagine there's times that he is up at light, late at night praying, not for what he wants, but that he may do the work that God has called him to do so that other people may grow in the knowledge of their Savior. He is actively, he is dedicatedly, he is committed to their growth. But he is not reliant on his own strength as he does this. It says that he is struggling with all his energy, Christ's energy, that he powerfully works within me. Paul is doing the labor. Christ is empowering him to do it. And ladies, we need to make sure that we're laboring steadfastly for the sake of God's family. But as we do so, we're relying on God's power that is at work within us to accomplish our assignments. 
And I know it could, we could ask ourselves, well, what practically does that mean? What does it practically mean to rely on God's power? Well, one of the things we have to, we just know from the get-go is it means that we're dedicated in prayer. It means that before we set out to accomplish our assignments, we're giving them over to God. We're saying, God, I know that the power that is at work in raising Christ from the dead is the power that has work, is at work within me. Because as Paul even says in this passage, Christ is in you, Church of Colossae. So I know that same power that conquered death is working in me to accomplish your purposes. So Father, I turn this over to you. Work within me. Guide my words. Guide my thoughts. It means that we're petitioning God. We're not so focused on our to-do list that we haven't stopped and said, God, what is it that you want me to do? How can you use me in this particular situation? It means that we're offering every conversation, ever and every interaction over to our Heavenly Father. It also means that as we're serving him, we're keeping our eyes fixed on him. Isaiah 26.3 says, You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is fixed on you, who is concentrating on our Savior. So Paul could say, I'm struggling, I'm agonizing, I'm laboring for the sake of the saints, but it's not me, it's God that's at work in me. And because of that, even as I labor, I am at peace. Which means if our eyes are fixed on Jesus, our eyes are not on ourselves. We're not worrying about how this affects me. We're not worrying about the cost to me or the inconvenience or the awkwardness. We're saying, Christ, it's all you. And because I'm relying on you, I'm not going to be worried about what it costs me to do this assignment. I'm going to trust that you are going to provide me everything I need for life and godliness. It also means when we're toiling with Christ's energy, it means that we leave the outcome in his hands. It means we don't fret or worry. We don't try to angle for a specific thing that we think needs to happen. It means that we say, God, I'm going to be faithful to do the work, and I'm going to leave the result up to you because I trust you to accomplish your purposes because it's you who's at work in this situation. It's you who's empowering me to do this. So I'm not going to fret or worry when things don't immediately look like what I think they should look like. I'm going to be faithful, and I'm going to leave the results in your hands. In God's providence, I had planned the introduction to this message a little over a week ago. And of course, in last week, I had the opportunity to use my famous phrase with one of my kids. One of my kids had a task, had an assignment, and we were talking about how this child needed to do it. And I said, you need to do this. And the child said, but it's hard. So I, of course, said, most things in life worth doing are. And then I said, plus, what does Team Winter do? And my kid, very soberly, very respectfully, very sorrowfully said, no. 
said, no, what do you mean? You don't want to be part of Team Winter? And he assured me that was not the case. He just really didn't want to do the assignment. He really thought this task was too hard for him. He thought that this particular work that was set before him wasn't worth the investment in time and energy and commitment. He wanted something else. He wanted to be given another task, something that was a little easier, something that may be more up his alley. Ladies, there may be times when God gives us an assignment and we want to have a similar response. We want to say, God, please, no. Give that to somebody else. Give it to someone who's more equipped. Give it to one of the pastors. God, please don't make me sacrifice in that way in order to serve you. But ladies, what we need to do when we're faced with those moments is we need to continue to be faithful. We need to continue to fix our eyes on our Savior and his plan. And we need to be dedicated to work for growth in God's family. As we do so, we can joyfully anticipate the suffering, the hardships that we might need to endure because we know that God is using them for the sake of his kingdom. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you that we continue to reap benefits from the suffering that Paul endured, that we continue to be strengthened in the knowledge and wisdom of you because everything did not go right for him. Father, I ask that as we endure hardships, as we endure, endure difficulties, that you will help us to remember that when we suffer for the sake of your name, that you are using that, you are using those afflictions to build your kingdom. And while we may never see this side of heaven how you do that, we can trust that you are. So, Father, I ask that you would be with us now as we go into our small groups. Help there to be rich discussion. Father, help us to encourage one another if we're suffering. Father, help us to exhort one another to teach each other with all wisdom. Father, help us to be used by you in order to help our sisters in Christ grow in wisdom, grow in knowledge, grow in love and service to you. Father, we thank you that you do not give us our assignments as individual actors, but that you give us a sisterhood, a family, Lord, that we can labor alongside for the sake of your great name. Father, I ask that you would help this to be a time of encouragement, of conviction, of exhortation. Father, help us to be always mindful of the fact that we want to serve and honor you in all that we say and do. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for what he accomplished on the cross. And we thank you, Father, when we're counted worthy to suffer for his name. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You are dismissed.